0: All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3. This morning, we are going to look at the final part of the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, a religious leader, part of the well-known uh, religious group of his day and time, and he had heard about Jesus' ministry and this man's teachings and his miracles, and he he was kind of curious. He thought Maybe just maybe this guy could be the Messiah they were looking for. He wasn't sure. So he came secretly at night to come and meet with Jesus, kind of interact with him a little bit so he could make up his own mind as to whether or not he thought Jesus really was the Messiah. And he kicked off the conversation basically by saying, well, we can tell that you're someone special. The things that you do, the things that you say, how God has blessed you, God's hand really seems to be upon you. And and he doesn't phrase it this way, but he's kind of almost, it seems, saying, if you are the Messiah, then what's next? What would you have us do if you really are this Messiah that it appears that you may be? And Jesus basically responds, he does respond to Nicodemus and says, you must be... Born again. And so they have this conversation about being born again. Nicodemus thinking physical rebirth, and Jesus saying, no, it's spiritual rebirth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they kind of zero in on that, clarify it a little bit, then Nicodemus says, how can this be? So he asked the white question, what's next? Then he asked, well, how does this happen? And Jesus used the story of the bronze serpent in the wilderness uh, to say that we're born again by believing in Jesus. Just as people look to the bronze serpent on the pole and they were supernaturally healed from being bitten by a snake and the snake venom, so too when we look to Jesus, we are supernaturally born again into God's family. So once someone understands how something works, it's very common that then we move to the point of asking why it works that way. You know, we, we asked the what, the how, then we well, why would that be the case? And Nicodemus being part of the religious leaders, they didn't really care for all people. They kind of wanted everybody to be like them. And if people weren't like them, then they said, then they're on their own. And they didn't feel and didn't think and didn't even want all peoples to be able to come to God. And so thinking about this why question, we, we've all had to grapple with why, have we not? And many of you have had children and maybe your grandchildren. Have they ever put you through the why ringer? Uh, with, with that little question, why? I remember my kids, we moved up here and they said, Dad, why aren't there palm trees in Virginia? And I said, because it's too cold for them. And they said, why? And I said, well, because cold air dips in from the north and makes it too cold for trees and it kills them in the wintertime. Well, why? And I said, because the earth rotates on its axis and gets further away from the sun for a couple of months a year and it gets cool in the winter months. And they said, Why? And I said, I don't even know what I said. I made something up. And when I finished, they said, well, why? And I'm sure I gave them another scientific meteorologic type answer and stuff. And they said, why? And I said, go ask your mom. I said, she's a teacher, has a teaching degree. I went to seminary and studied the Bible. The answer for us was always because God said so, all right? So, so that's why palm trees don't grow in the winters because God said so. But you know, there are other why questions that are much more serious. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do babies die? Why do ungodly people seem to prosper while those who seek after God sometimes suffer? Why did it take 30 years for us to ever put wheels on suitcases and coolers? Why do women... I well, never mind. But... But you get the point, all right, of the why question. And I can almost see Nicodemus in his mind because he's got this idea of not all people come to God. I don't even want all people to come to God. Jesus is saying, uh, you know, that that, uh, we must be born again and that whoever believes in him would mean to all people. And I think he's just about to say, well, why would God do that? But before he gets a chance to ask the question, Jesus answers it. He tells us why God wants people to be born again and why believing in Jesus allows us to become the children of God. In the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. That's why. That's why we have the opportunity to be born again to become the child of God because God loves us. For God so loved the world, he says, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love is what moved him to do everything necessary for us to be saved from our sins and become his children. But to best understand God's love in saving us, we need to first understand the situation we put ourselves in that requires us to need saving. What is our condition? What is it that has moved us to a point that we need to be saved in the first place? And what are we saved from? Now, this has really become a, a, a topic of conversation uh, in, in religious circles in recent weeks, a lot on Facebook and with our seminaries being published, and a lot of bloggers out there in, in Christian are writing about this, because there's a prominent megachurch pastor who's recently released a new book. And his book, in his book, he asks some very thought-provoking, some very emotionally charged questions about God, about heaven... About hell, about our need for salvation and how and when a person uh, is saved. And the, kind of the, the nugget, the central question that, that he built around and that, he, that he's grappling with and asking people to, to walk with him through is Will a loving God send people to hell? And if so, where is that hell? Is it literal? Is it metaphorical? How long will they stay there? Well, what takes place? But that question Will a loving God send people to hell? He poses this question and writes a whole book about it. And unfortunately, he does what so many people, both believers and unbelievers alike, do. And that is he leads with his emotions rather than what the truths of the Bible teach about that question and about these issues. And they start with a wrong assumption. See, we, we basically assume that all people are going to heaven by default. I think, well, basically we're good people. Uh, we're good by nature. Therefore we're going to go to heaven and only the people who commit really bad sins. And you know, which ones are the really bad ones, right? The ones you don't struggle with. You know, only those people who commit the really bad sins are the ones who don't make it to heaven. Everybody else, you know, is merely on their way. And so the rub for us, this this dissonance in in our hearts and our spirit comes when we think of a loving God. And we know that God is loving because the Bible says, and I quote directly, God is love. So we have this picture of a, of a loving God who just suddenly snaps and, and he comes in and, and he looks down on people who are, who are basically good, they're moral, they're upright, and they're on their merry way to heaven. And this loving God suddenly looks at him and goes, stop, you evil, vile wretch. I sentence you to eternal separation from me. Get away from me because I don't like you anymore. And we go, what? What? What what do we do? Why would a loving God do that? That, That's such a harsh punishment and that doesn't fit the picture of what we imagine a loving God to be. See, that's the picture we paint in our minds, but you see, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible says about God and his character and about our situation at all. And to illustrate that and and to kind of give us a context this morning to understand this passage, I want to tell you a story, a story about the river, There was a world famous, a majestic uh, river that drew huge crowds of people every year to come and to play and and to experience all the, the fun and the pleasure that this river had to offer. And a man and his family lived on the banks of this river And he told his children, don't get near the river. Don't get in the river. Don't even set a toe in the water. That river is dangerous and I don't want you to get near it, let alone ever get into it. Now, as children do, his kids began to grow. And as they began to grow, they became more and more intrigued by this river. Because from their house and there on the banks, they would see thousands and thousands of people floating down the river. And they were on boats and on wave runners and they were being pulled on tubes and floating on tubes and, you know, water skiing and, and just seemingly having the time of their lives splashing and playing in this river. And the kids noticed that, that all the women on the river were beautiful and all the men were handsome and they all had perfect hands and, and they were smiling. They seemed to be so happy and so fulfilled out on this river and they saw person after person hordes of people float down the river disappear around the bend seemingly without a care in the world and then one day it happened the oldest son said i'm going on the river Dad's rule about us not being in the river is just to keep us from having fun and experiencing and having a good time like everybody else is. I don't care what dad says, I'm going to go on the river and I'm going to go have some fun. And he announced this to his siblings, and they marched down to the edge of the water. And the young man took and he, he put his first foot into the water. And something unexpected occurred he felt that that water was a lot colder than he thought it was gonna be. It startled him how cold the water was and had it not been for his siblings who were watching him and then the people who saw him putting that first foot in the river saying, oh, come on, you'll be fine. You'll get used to it. Come on in. He would have pulled his foot out of the water, but people were watching and he didn't wanna go back on his word. So he, rather than getting out of the river, took another step into this cold water. And he took a few more steps and he discovered something else that was unexpected. The slippery soft mud suddenly turned to sharp jagged rocks that he was walking on. And they hurt. They were causing him great pain in his feet. They were tearing at his feet and and it was really causing him a lot of discomfort. And he took a couple of steps and and he finally realized as the water was coming up that, that he could not stand the pain of these rocks any longer. And he could either go back to the bank and get out of these rocks or he could do what he did and that's to pull his feet up and fully immerse himself in the water of this river. So that he could take the pressure and the tension off of his feet as he was walking on these rocks. And when he pulled his feet up and immersed himself in the river, he discovered the third and the biggest surprise of all. He was amazed at how swiftly this river was flowing. In a matter of seconds, he found himself pulled well away from the bank toward the middle of the river and downstream further than he had ever intended or desired to go on his little adventure. As a matter of fact, he he turned around in just a few moments to look and see his house, and he could no longer see his house or his siblings who were standing there on the bank. And the young man began to panic. He he was afraid because now he he had no sense of bearing of where where he was and what was going on, and he was almost in full panic mode when someone reached out and grabbed his his arm pulled him over to their tube and said hey you can hang on to my tube and they began to talk and have a conversation and, and laugh a little bit and slowly the tension began to ebb away and he adjusted to the coolness of the water and over the course of the next few hours he began to meet other people and they began to play and enjoy boating and tubing and rafting and water skiing and all that the river had to offer and occasionally this young man would stop and say dad was wrong Dad was wrong. The river is a blast. I'm having so much fun out here. He didn't know what he was talking about. And he lost all sense of time. He had no idea how long he had been out on the river when he first heard it. But he noticed that instead of the laughing and the the, 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 uh, the, the joys of elation and the, the fun that people were having, he noticed faintly at first, and then it began to grow louder and louder with every passing second, that... People were shouting and then he noticed that those shouts became cries of terror. And then he could hear fear in people's voice. And as he looked around, he began to notice people looking downstream and they were pointing and they were yelling and they were screaming. They were terrified at something. And the young man turned and he pulled himself up and he could see off in the distance the most menacing rapids he'd ever seen in his life. As far as the eye could see, huge rocks jutting up out of the river, some 50 feet high, some 30 feet wide. And as he looked at, at, on those rocks, he saw the carnage of, uh, of shipwrecked watercraft and vessels that had been thrown into the rocks and dashed to pieces. And, and there were remnants on the rocks and there were some that had, that had come off on the sides of the bank and were stuck in the, the other dangerously jagged rocks there on the edge in the stretch of rapids. And he saw on those rocks and on the, on the, uh, the other rocks on the banks that there were uh, remnants of inner tubes and, and people's clothing and life vests. And he realized that every person who had gone into those rapids, suffered the same fate as all of those water vessels. And the young man was terrified and he began to swim toward the bank, gave everything he had to get away from the middle of this river and get to the bank, back to safety. But his energy was spent. He didn't have the strength and the stamina to make it to the bank. And he got closer But he finally realized he wasn't gonna make it. And he resigned himself to his inevitable death that awaited him in those rapids. And just as he had resigned himself to that, faintly, ever so quietly, he heard from the river a familiar voice calling out his name. And the young man turned and he saw his father standing on the bank with a life preserver and a rope attached to it. And the young man waved his arm so that his father would see him. And his dad took and he heaved that life preserver. And it landed just a few inches from his head. And he grabbed and and he wrapped his arm in, so relieved that his father had come. And his dad began pulling him into the bank. Tug after tug, pulling him ever closer. And his father yelled out, son, get as many people as you can to grab on. I'll pull all of you in. And so he began to invite people, grab the rope, grab the preserver. My dad will save us. He'll rescue us. And he was stunned at how many people rejected his offer to be saved. Some said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm almost there. I can make it on my own. Others said, no, 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 we, we think we got a way around this. We figured out how we're going to be able to navigate through. We're going to be fine. We don't need your help. Some unbelievably even denied that the rapids were there. No, no, they're not as bad as they look. It, it, it's no big deal. But what broke his heart was the people who were floating on tubes and who were on boats and these different vessels. And and as he was telling them, come on, you're going to die. Come with me. You can be rescued. You can be saved. Who laughed and smiled and were so comfortable on their tube or on their raft or on their boat, thinking they were safe, even though they were about to be sucked to their death in these rapids. And finally, this young man reached the shore and he crawled through the rocks and the mud and he got on the bank and fell into his father's arms, crying tears of uh, of remorse, cold and wet and trembling. And all he could say was, Father, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for not listening to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for saving me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Was the father in this story a loving father? He provided a home for his kids. He fed them, he clothed them, he met their needs. He cared enough about them to say, kids don't go in the river, it's dangerous, it's not safe. Don't go by the river. He was a loving father. When he heard from his children what had happened to his oldest son, he didn't say, see, I told you guys that's what was going to happen. Let that be an example to you that you guys need to listen to me. You will never hear from your brother again. And if you get in the water, the same thing will happen to you. I tried to tell you, I tried to warn you, whatever happens, happens. He's on his own. No, he didn't do it. As soon as he heard the news, he grabbed that preserver and he ran to where the rapids were to do all that he could to see if he could rescue his son. Hoping all the while that it wasn't too late. And you may be saying, what does it have to do with John chapter 3? Well, it has a lot to do actually with John chapter 3. Now this is just a story that that I created to to use a couple of teaching points. Uh, Don't build your theology off of a single story. Because no story is perfect other than God's story that's told in the Bible. But there are a couple of things that I want to point out to you from this story. That I think help us understand God's love for us from John 3.16. The first thing I want you to recognize from this story is that God, our loving father, desires obedience from his children. God desires obedience from his children. And God does that not because he's some cosmic killjoy sitting up in heaven going, I don't want them to have any fun. So I'm going to tell them they can do that. You know, I don't want anybody to have any fun because I don't like fun. That's not why God gives us principles and truths in his word and scripture that he wants us to follow. God gives us his scripture and calls us to obey that for two reasons, two primary reasons. One is God does that to protect us. God's word and following God's word and his principles and his truths will protect us. They can protect us physically. They protect us emotionally, but they protect us spiritually as well. God gives us his word and calls us to obey his word to protect us from from the destruction and the devastation that sin will wreak in our lives. But secondly, God gives us his word to provide for us. God wants uh, us to have a full and meaningful life. Jesus said about Satan that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God desires a full, meaningful, fulfilled life for us. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from the fruit of, the, of any tree except this one. Is that prohibitive? Is that limiting to Adam and Eve that they had everything but the one? Well, that's not a bad deal, was it? Just just one to follow. Anything but this tree. And what was it like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Oh, so miserable, so awful, it was so bad. God said, we can't eat from this tree over here. How awful was it for them? They knew an intimacy with God like no other. They knew an intimacy with one another that we long and crave for in our relationship with our spouses today. They were naked and knew no shame. God had provided everything for them, but they wanted that one tree. And so they, they partook of the fruit of that tree. And then what happened? Yeah, it went downhill from there. This big river, I just, this, this river of sin that I just described began flowing through humanity. They were separated from God. They were ashamed and they hid from God when he came back to the garden. That they, they, were, they were separated and alienated from one another. That they, they covered themselves in clothing. And then when God asked them whose fault it was, what'd they do? It was her, it was him. No, it was that snake. They're, the blame game started. Yeah, this river of sin began to flow through humanity. A second thing we see from this story is that sin looks appealing. Sin looks appealing. The kids noticed and saw that the people on the river uh, were supposedly living it up out there on the water. And the allure of sin is very powerful because Satan works very hard at making sin look appealing and fulfilling and above all else, fun. Satan wants us to think it's the grandest thing in the world. And why does he do that? Why does he work so hard to make sin look appealing? He does that because if we really knew what it was going to do and what it was going to bring into our lives, we wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I enjoy sports. I, I, I watch sports. My oldest son, uh, I'm I bringing him along and bringing him up in, in, in that tradition, and he loves it as well. We were up, you know, he was up to 1 o'clock Friday watching Kentucky and then VCU but part of what has happened in that is we have to watch the commercials as well. And so we try and use that as teaching moments and help him to discern what's appropriate, and not, what's not appropriate to watch and to look at. And as we were, uh, we were watching a game here not too long ago, one of the alcohol commercials came on. And man, they have, you know, young, attractive people. They're always funny, you know, just have this, you know, the big smiles on their face and, and they do all these things that just give you this great perception about their their alcoholic beverage and stuff. And Shelly and I were talking, I know she looked at him and she said, Caleb, you notice how they make everything look fun in the commercials and people are having such a good time and all the joy that this stuff brings? And, and he's like, yeah. And she said, well, that's really not what happens. They don't want to show you some of the devastating effects. I mean, think about the alcohol company that puts the carnage of a wrecked and mangled vehicle where a drunk driver just killed a family of five in a minivan. You think they're gonna sell many cases of their their alcoholic beverage that way that people are gonna wanna buy that? No way, they're not gonna do that. And they don't show you the life of the man who who lost his family, who lost his job because of his addiction and he forsook everything and and walked away from all of it and the devastation and and just the despair that's been brought in his life by this product. They're not gonna show you those things because that doesn't sell products. Satan makes sin look appealing So we'll be drawn to it. So we'll want it. So we'll desire it. And what did Jesus say about this road to destruction and giving in to this allure of sin? He said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The children envied and wanted to have fun like everyone else on the river. Sin looks appealing. But the third thing we understand from scripture is that sin is deceptive And it is destructive. Sin is deceptive and it is destructive. The water was colder than the young man thought it would be. The the rocks were sharper. The the current was stronger than he expected. But he couldn't tell those things just by looking at the river. He didn't know that. And friends, we can't tell the despair and, and the destruction, the devastation that will come into our lives as a result of sin. We don't know. We won't understand until it's too late. And as the young man got further and further into the river, it numbed his senses, the cold water. And as he waited on the rocks, he could have turned and got out, but what did he do to relieve the pressure and the pain? It's what sin tells us to do. Don't go back, just do some more. And so he immersed himself even further into the river and was swept away. I heard Jerry Vines one time say, I don't know if he originated the phrase or not, but he one time made this statement, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And I found that to be so true of sin and you will find it to be true as well because it is deceptive and it is utterly and completely destructive. You see, the issue in our understanding of God's love from John 3, 16 is that our fundamental assumption is wrong. Our default destination isn't heaven because we're good people, because we're not good people. Our default destination, therefore, is hell. It's being separated from God because we have disobeyed God. And we're like these people, we get in this river and we are at its mercy as it carries us toward destruction. And we find our way to that river all by ourselves. Paul in Romans chapter three writes and tells us how pervasive sin is in the lives of human beings. In Romans three, verse 10, Paul says this, none is righteous, no, not one. How many is one? How many is none? we're one. None, Paul says, is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, Paul says. And Paul, that's not a way to in, to win friends and influence people, you know, by calling them worthless. But Paul says, that's what we are because we've disobeyed, we've rejected, we've walked away from God. He says, um, no one does good, not even one. Listen to this scripture. He describes us from head to toe what will happen if we are left to ourselves, the nature that's within us. Their throat is an open grave. What happens in a grave? Decay, rotting, deterioration. Paul says their throat is an open grave. He says they use their tongues to deceive can I get an amen on people using their tongues to deceive? Yeah, well, yeah, all the time. Uh, he goes on and says, the venom of asps is under their lips. Uh, the words that we speak can cause, can cause death, can tear down, can, can destroy other people. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Words carry power, destructive, detrimental power. And we don't wield that well. Paul says there's a minimum of asps under their tongues. Uh, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He goes from our head to our feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And he goes back and says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul basically says, left to ourselves our every inclination from head to toe is going to be towards sin. And he sums this up in Romans 3.23 by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So will a loving God send people to hell? No, he doesn't have to. We will find our way there on our own. He doesn't have to send. We're on that path. We are on that road left to ourselves. And that's what Jesus is telling John. Look back at John chapter three, verse 17. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Look at this verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already Jesus said I don't have to do the condemning they're already condemned Jesus says but those who believe in him can be saved and rescued from that condemnation which brings us to the fourth point here that we understand that we cannot save ourselves we cannot save ourselves by the time the son realized what awaited him he couldn't get out of the river on his own And he was ready to give up when he heard his father. And when his father threw that preserver and pulled him out of the river and his father saved him. You know, and I shared the part of the story about people not accepting his invitation and all these things that they were going to do to be able to survive and get through the rapids. And church, that's what happens when people are presented with the gospel today. People say, no, I'm fine. I'm going to make it on my own or, or I've got a way. I'm going to work this out. You know, and, I, and I, they have this, this hope, this expectation that, that they're going to be able to do something. But perhaps one of the most heartbreaking elements is those people who were fo- floating on the boats and on the rafts and on, on the tubes in the river thinking they were fine. They had a false hope. And there's so many people in the world today who, who realize they needed something. They were missing something. And someone threw them A raft of a false religion or a false teaching. And those people have grasped onto that and say, oh, I'm okay, I'm fine, when they're still being pulled to their destruction because there's no one on the the bank to pull them and to rescue them, to bring them to safety. Safety. And the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that he's the one who rescues and he is the way to pull us to safety. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's that rope that we're holding on to. Jesus as the preserver and the Holy Spirit who, who provides a way for God to pull us to himself so we can become the children of God. And the issue here isn't one of sitting passively and not making a decision to accept Christ. Because not making a decision to place our faith in Christ is making a decision to reject Christ. We're not neutral. There is no sitting on the fence. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. And in verse 19, Jesus tells us this will be the case. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out where? In God. Jesus says that salvation, that deliverance is in God. That as we come to the light, yes, our deeds are exposed. But we say to God, God, I've sinned. I've disobeyed you. And God, I'm sorry for that sin. And I need you to save me from the penalty of this sin. And God, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's death on the cross, he's the one who rescues us. It is carried out in God, Jesus says. That is our source. That is the place of salvation. And why is that made available? For God so loved the world. We were helpless. We were hopeless until God, because of his love, sent his son to die and pay the penalty for our sins. And the Bible clearly teaches that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to life uh, through Jesus Christ. But you'll see, even in John 3:16, it's been described as the gospel in a nutshell, that there is still a response. There is something that we must do uh, in order to receive this gift of salvation. John 3:16 says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes, we must believe in the name of Christ, we must receive Him into our lives. God has done all of the work necessary. We must simply believe in Jesus and then receive his gift of salvation.